Hello. May I welcome you to episode 14 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second or fourth Thursday of each month. This episode was recorded at the beginning of December, so there is a little bit of what's known as time shifting within the podcasting community. Recording this episode was an absolute joy, as my guest is very well known within the industry and someone I have known for many years now. He was on absolute top form during the recording of this episode and was full of his usual fun and frolics, so my apologies for outbreaks of laughter throughout. He runs a very successful and well-known multi-depot nationwide removal company within the United Kingdom. And you are about to discover that he's not only a rebel and immortal, but he is also a genuinely nice chap indeed. My guest this episode is none other than Robert Bartup, Managing Director of GB Liners. Enjoy. Good afternoon, Robert. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Colin. Welcome to Moving Matters. Can you tell everyone a little about yourself and the length of time in this industry? I can. This is year 46 in this industry, full-time work, which some people will be able to work out how old I am from that. <laughs> I started uh, having done a business studies degree at Leicester in 1975. So this is now year 46 I'm in now. And I've only ever worked for the illustrious GB Liners. Uh, so that's where I am. How did you get started in the industry? I am the progeny of another man who was in the removal industry, whose father was also in the removal industry. So my grandfather started the business in Brighton in 1923. So in three years' time, there's going to be one hell of a party. And... Uh, <laughs> That's how I came to be in the job. I followed my dad and I followed my granddad. So you are third generation removal man. I am a third generation removal director. Yes, not a man. Ah, no. director. Sorry, I stand, yeah. I stand corrected. I'm, I'm management, please. I'm not a removal man. <laughs> I failed to get into the local private school because I told the headmaster in my interview, age 11, that my dad was a removal man. I think he looked down his nose and thought I wasn't the sort of man for his school. <laughs> but isn't that such a shame for this industry? <laughs> what? That I didn't get into the private school? <laughs> <laughs> no, both. <laughs> so can you tell everyone about your company, when it was formed, who formed the company, how many branches, trucks, staff, services that it offers? Well, as I say, my grandfather started in Brighton in 1923. My father, like all of his generation, fought in the Second World War. By the time he came out of the Second World War, my grandfather had died. He died in 1944. And my dad was sent to a place called Hereford by my grandfather's partners to run a one-van business in Hereford, which they bought to get him out of the way. He was aged 26 and he was a nuisance, I can tell. <laughs> and uh, they support, sent him up there. No money. Wartime rationing still on. And as soon as he got to Hereford in 1946, this week, in fact, it started to snow. And he had to get through that winter of 1947, where for eight weeks he couldn't get his only van and his only man out of the yard. 
So my father grew the business a bit when he died in 1995. Uh, we'd got Hereford and Brighton and we'd acquired a business in London. We'd acquired businesses in Bristol and Cheltenham. And then we gradually grew other branches for all sorts of reasons in all sorts of places to the point where today we have 11 branches uh, using the GB Liners brand. We have two standalone self-stores and the group also owns the Clark and Rose business with three branches in Aberdeen, Stirling and Biggleswade. And we also own, through the same business, a unique van bodies up in Warrington, which, as everybody will know, builds trucks for the removal industry. So that's the sort of spread we've got between us, I suppose. We have about 100 vehicles these days. We've probably got, if you take the whole group, 250 to 300 people, something like that working for us. Our bread and butter business is household moving and storage. We do very little office and commercial. As I've said, you know, storage is quite a big, important part of our business. The self-stores are quite a big, important part of our business. We've put self-storage into half a dozen of the other branches as well, but we do have some standalone ones, so we run that alongside the moving business in some places. European business uh, until the 31st of December is quite a big part of our business. Goodness knows what it'll be like from the 1st of January. I've no idea. And uh, I think our sort of concentration is on doing the job right and being the most expensive mover in town rather than doing it wrong and being the cheapest mover in town. <laughs> I need to come back on one thing. Yeah. Unique van bodies. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, you see, you need to listen to these podcasts a bit more often, really. Ah, <laughs> uh, dear. How did you get involved with Unique Van Bodies then? Uh, well, I think really this was Terry Sinnott's baby. He, yes. you know, he had been in the industry forever and a day. He fancied having a go on his own for various reasons. He was looking around for sort of financial backers, helpers, minders, investors. We decided we'd have a bit of fun with it, and we have had a bit of fun with it. It's been a roller coaster journey, like a lot of things in this uh, business. But it's been an interesting diversion, and it, uh, I think, has preserved a skill that, you know, otherwise might have gone to waste. So, yeah, we've enjoyed it. Hasn't, you know, we won't have made a fortune out of it, but we've enjoyed it, and we like the product as well. That's the other thing about it. So there we are. Excellent. What challenges have you had to overcome in the industry? <laughs> no money. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, you just said you're the most expensive. <laughs> yeah, they are. Challenges. Well, I just talked about my dad, right? My dad never had any money all of his business life. So when I took over from him, I inherited a business that had no money. And fortunately, over the sort of 25 years that I've been running the business since he departed this, this earth, we've managed to get a bit of cash around us and we've managed to buy a lot of freeholds for our premises. So, I mean, we were a business that rented a lot of premises back in the 1990s and we're now a business that owns a lot of premises. And, you know, we've overcome that no cash, no money issue. But that's really the big thing that we've had to deal with i suppose i mean all sorts of other challenges i wouldn't say staff has been a challenge in itself staff have always been quite wonderful in in many ways but they've been like everybody has black days i'm sure we've had the odd fire 
try to destroy our business along the along the way. You know, the odd disaster here and there that you know you look back on and you think uh, just scraped by that one. <laughs> How do you get over something like a fire? You have a really good loss assessor work for you. I never knew such people existed before we had our fire. But when we had our fire in 1990, I was in Frankfurt at the time, so I wasn't the man with the match. (laughs) Somebody said, I thought it was supposed to be Thursday. And (laughs) so when, when I came back from Frankfurt or when my dad got to the office the next morning, there was a list of, you know, there was about seven or eight loss assessors. They're all pitching for the work, all wanted to be appointed you know, to assess our loss and deal with the insurance companies for us, you know. So rather than relying on their loss adjuster to tell you how much you're going to get, you employ a loss assessor to tell you how much you've lost and represent that to the insurance company. And I have to say the company we appointed, which was Thompson and Bryan, did us proud, really. They got money for things that we would never have dreamt of asking for. But it was not easy. It came at a point where the industry, you know, the whole of the UK economy was pretty depressed in that depression of the early 90s. Mrs. Thatcher was uh, not very popular and trying to find money to rebuild a building at more money than, you know, than we had was not easy. In those days, Lloyds Bank weren't our friends. They're our friends today, but they weren't then. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... No money is my is my issue that I've had to overcome, and I think we've overcome it. But you you know you're always on a sort of roller coaster, and you know just you got money in the bank today. I've just been saying to a lot of my people this week, you know what comes after a boom, you know, so don't get too carried away with it. You know, there's a bust coming, don't you worry. Yeah, 30, absolutely. Thirty first of March, it'll all be boom. I can remember. I can remember 31st of August 1988 when Nigel Lawson removed mortgage interest relief at source. And we had every van and every rental van in Hereford on hire and in the yard and full and so on. And on the 5th of September, I looked around and there wasn't a single job in the diary. <laughs> so I've been from boom to bust in five days once before. And I suspect we're looking, heading for it again on the 31st of March, unless Dishy Rishi comes up with an extension of the stamp duty holiday. Well, let's hope he extends it. Yeah, let's, let's hope he does. And if you could change anything from the past, what would it be? If I could change anything from the past? Well, I've often said that I always regret not working outside the family business for a period. I think that's a weakness that I have because I have always been an employer or on the employer's side. I've never been an employee. And sometimes it's difficult to put yourself in the shoes of an employee. So I think that's probably something I would like to have changed. And the other thing I'd like to have changed in my life is I would like to have spoken French more fluently than I do, which is not very fluently at all. And I'd like to have spoken French to a good standard, I think. And I think uh, uh, that's one of my other regrets in life. But they're sort of those are sort of personal regrets rather than business regrets, if you know what I mean. Having not worked outside of the business, would you have liked to have worked for somebody else in the removal business or just worked for somebody else doing something completely different? Uh, yes, is the answer to both questions, I think, really. I would like to get some different experience from a different point of view. But I don't say I've never got that experience. You've probably got the experience in a different way. And I would like to have done something different. I mean, at one stage, I did get quite a lot of offers when I was finishing my degree to go and be a, train to be an accountant. 
I turned them all down in the end, blood became thicker and water, and I came home to work. But looking back, I wish I'd done that, probably. And I actually wish that I hadn't done accountancy. I wish I'd done law. So I, but, you know, <laughs> when you're 22, uh, you don't think of everything. <laughs> No, absolutely. And people, when they go to university, generally learn one subject and come out and do something completely different and never use it. Yeah, well, no, I did I did business studies and I did the business studies courses in those days consisted of economics, accounting, law, and quite a lot of employment law and quite a lot of contract law. So it was good business law that we did. We did some sort of like what they call it, like social studies we did. Or, and we did computing, Colin, you'll be pleased to know, in I can write in COBOL, right? Oh, I remember those days. I can sort in sort punched cards in a machine, right? You know, we had a big computer <laughs> suite, or the whole of the first floor at Leicester was given over to the computer suite, uh, you know, all air-conditioned and so on. Huge, you know, very different to today's computing power, of course, but uh, we did that. Punch cards and floppy disks, eh? <laughs> Plunge cards, yeah, yeah. Plunge cards, yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> so, no, it was it was a very useful degree. I mean, I look back on that and I interview young people these days who've done business studies degree, and I'm surprised at how narrow their um, their degree has been. I think I was very lucky to do a very wide degree, and I've used a lot of it. So yeah, but yeah, I, I should have done other things. There we are. <laughs> what is your high point of being in the industry? Uh, I think, well, if at the high point in the business, um, I've enjoyed some of the successes we've had, some of the buildings that we've built and opened, and some of the trucks we've built, and some of the work we've done, some of the jobs we've done, and so on. Some of the staff I've worked with have been really talented, dedicated people. So, you know, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed all that. I've enjoyed some of the planning and development that goes with that. <laughs> some of the challenges that have gone with that. If I look at my career in the wider industry, I think that moving up project we did in the late 1990s where we got the government funding for video training and workbooks and so on to try and improve manual skills was quite a Quite a high point, I think, really. Um, Was that the one with the white truck? That's the one with the white truck. Yeah, uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, there you are. So, yeah, the Omo van, yeah. So, I no, I was impressed by that. And I was impressed by the people I worked with on that as well. A lot of the people, you know, one of the great joys I found at committee work is that, you know, lots of people have lots of very good ideas. And people work really, really quite hard on some of those committees over the years as well. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed my time as BAR president. I was very touched by my uh, life membership of BAR that they gave me in Stratford two years ago, 18 months, two years ago. So, no, I was, um, so I've had some uh, some high points. I guess everybody's had low points, but uh, those are the things that are stuck in my mind anyway. So, as you said, you are a past president of the BAR. Yep. Did you enjoy your time in your presidential role? And how is it different then to the presidential role of today? Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the the years before it. 
and the years after it as well. I didn't just do the presidency and then drop off the end of the table. I mean, that was 2002 that I did the presidency and I'm still involved on the Overseas Group Council today. I'm still you know, involved in the advance payment guarantee scheme today. So uh, I've maintained that interest. I'm still involved in the training course when we can get it to run. We haven't managed to run the removal masterclass this year, but uh, training has always been one of my interests in the industry. Um, So I enjoyed that presidential role. I enjoyed the ability to make change or to, you know, push change through. I enjoyed the people. Again, I worked with John Luxford, Paul Fox, Annie Neve, the people, you know, in my generation there. Uh, and some one or two of the people before me, people like uh, David Pearson and so on, who Phil Bertoldi, who uh, helped me with Tony Richmond, there's another name as well, people who helped me with what I was doing, guided me, pushed me in the right direction, suggested this, suggested that. Yeah, so I enjoyed that ability to make a difference. So Rob Sires, of course, was integral to to doing all of that. So I did enjoy it. It was um, It was different. You know, you have to realise you're... Like the prime minister, you are the first amongst equals. You know, everybody has a view. You're not uh, the dictator in that situation <laughs> like you are in your own business. So it is a different different set of challenges. But uh, the ability to, you know, to do something for the industry, because we were just going through or just coming up to code of practice time, which uh, Rob Sires and I worked on. And we had a meeting with the Office of Fair Trading about contract conditions. All that sort of stuff was really interesting and really worthwhile, I think. And um, something I'm very glad I did. How is the job different today? Well, the governance of BAR is different. I think, I don't, <laughs> I think it it could and should be better than the way that we, that we, that we ran it um, in, our, in our sort of cavalier uh, style in the day, just uh, moving from disaster to disaster. <laughs> but <laughs> I do think that one of the problems these days is that the board is supposed to be strategic and therefore the strategy is supposed to be the boards. And I don't think the board do enough to promote their vision and their strategy. They leave it all to the director general. Well, I oh, that's perhaps an exaggeration, but I think it's the board's strategy and not the director general strategy. The board are there to represent the members and come up with a strategy for the industry and get the director general to implement it. And I think it's the board's job to promote that strategy, to discuss it, to help them, to get the members to help them formulate it, right, and carry the board, the members with them, right, rather than hand it down as tablets of stone to the members. And I think that's one of the areas at the moment where we're not as good as we could be in the association. Interesting. So you mentioned then the APG scheme. Yep. What was your involvement in the APG scheme? (laughs) Well, my involvement has been quite interesting, really. First of all, just as I was coming out of the BAR presidency, an international moving company went bust. An international moving company, which was the old Loveday and Loveday business, the Bewley and Sheppens business, the Heat business, the removal company, they had a number of different names and so on, the TNS business up in Scotland, right? They went bust. And of course, they were our neighbours in Sirencester. They were our neighbours in St. Helens and Manchester. And they were an attractive business for us to pick up, even though, you know, 
it was bust. So my first involvement was on the side of the fence where I am actually dealing with the customers whose goods are marooned all over the world, shipped by a business I've just bought, lots of angry customers, and me trying to liaise with IMI, which in those days was the prepayment guarantee scheme run by BAR, to try and get these customers' goods moved to destination, and then to reclaim the costs that we incurred, the customer incurred through the IMI system. And I worked quite closely with Ted Philp, who was the IMI director at that time, along with uh, Michael Gerson, to achieve that. And then when Ted came to retire from IMI, I was asked if I would then go alongside Michael Gerson to the, on the IMI board in Guernsey. And I probably spent best part of 10 years, I would think, going to IMI board meetings in uh, Guernsey, and uh, I was effectively the apprentice to Michael Gerson, and that's quite a quite an achievement, <laughs> I think, because uh, there aren't many sharper people than Michael Gerson in the world of finance, I can tell you, in, or not in this rural industry anyway. So I learned a lot there about the way that IMI managed the risk and how they managed the claims and so on. But over time, I think it became clear that it was a very expensive way of dealing with the risk. And of course, BAR was under pressure to find another way of dealing with the risk that it was effectively carrying on its balance sheet through the code of practice guarantee to customers. So I was instrumental in helping to set up the Advanced Payment Guarantee Trust. And Ian Studd, bless his cotton socks, suggested that I should be the chairman of it on two grounds. Uh, first of all, I knew more about the issue than anybody else in the industry at this time. And secondly, if they made me the chairman, the membership wouldn't think it was a stitch up because I'm known as a rebel. So <laughs> I didn't know whether to take that as a compliment or as an insult. I took it as a compliment in the end. So I became the chairman of the Advanced Payment Guarantee Trust, a job that I hold today. And we, of course, have had some fairly big collapses since then. I'd, I'd already worked through European van lines when I was IMI. We worked through Chapman's. We worked through Wentworth when it was IMI. And obviously, since then, we've had to work through Movecore and Pearson's and Neves and there'd be one or two others, but they haven't cost any money. Some big names there, though, Robert. Some big names and some big, big activities. Yes. You know, mm. the sort of activities that 20 years ago, we wouldn't have seen, you know, lots of leads generated or bought over the web, sold over the web, you know, yeah. more of a production line, often not much resource, all subbed out, all contracted, almost a bedroom, uh, I hesitate to say, almost a bedroom type broker, although both Movecore and Pearson's did have some operation of their own, as of course yeah. did Neves. Neves wasn't a bedroom broker at all, it was just an ordinary sort of business. But yeah, that's a, difficult, <laughs> I think. <laughs> difficult and interesting, I think. Uh, and you, you read, you know, when you see the files, you can see some of the reasons why some of these people didn't survive till the end. What one thing would you change within the moving industry? If I had a magic wand, I would make the industry proud of the service it provides and prouder of the price it charges for it. I think we have a great tendency to underestimate 
our own value, the skill, the effort that our staff and we put into it, the risks we take. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by underpricing and underselling what we have to offer, which I think, by and large, is a pretty good service at a very stressful time for the public. That answer's come up several times now in my podcast. <laughs> How can we go about resolving this? How do we do it? I can only think it's education. I can, I can, it's all I can think it is. It's a, you know trying to mould attitudes. It's trying to promote success stories rather than disasters. It's, tr- you know, I mean, we've seen some people in this industry who've done really, really well out of it, haven't we? Absolutely. Yeah. But those stories have never been sort of presented on how it's been, how it's been done. So it looks, <laughs> it looks like magic, but it's not magic. They've just got a formula right. They've got good people. They've decided, you know, that's the sector they're going to go after. They've chosen their market carefully. They've presented themselves well to that market and they've succeeded. And I think everybody sometimes has got the noses so close to the grindstone, they don't look up and see what others are doing and what the opportunities are and what the possibilities are. So I, I, only, I can only think it's education. We need to probably celebrate our successes a bit more, publicise our successes, and probably educate the industry a bit more in, um, in how to get it right, <laughs> rather, rather than spend all our time trying to fit them into a straight jacket of compliance. <laughs> <laughs> but how can we educate the customer? Educating the industry is one thing. What about educating the customer? Because at the end of the day, you could go over there and say all your services are gold-plated, the customer still looks at that bloody bottom line. The customer has no idea of a price of removal until they ask the price. If we told them it was £2,000, £2,500 and £3,000, they would think the price is around £2,500. If we tell them it's £1,000, £1,500 and £2,000, they think the price is around £1,500. They have yeah. no idea until we tell them the price. So it's about getting our expectations right before before we go to the customer. We have to be proud of our price. We have to understand that what we're providing costs money done properly. We, I mean, we can hardly be proud of what we pay our staff, can we? <laughs> no, absolutely not. I mean, we expect miracles from these guys, frankly. And how far above minimum wage are some of them? Not far, are they? So, all right, maybe they are minimum wage type people, some of them, and there are some of those about, I know. But if people want good service, that generally means you've got to have good people. And good people, old story, pay peanuts, get monkeys. So no, I think I do think so much is in our, in our own hands, really. It's something that BAR has to lead on, I think, really rather than, I say, just trying to straightjacket us all into compliance these days. But in fairness to Ian Studd and to some of the current board as well, they do. I think they do understand that issue. And I think Ian Studd's been proactive in looking at financial metrics for businesses and generally tightening up the financial criteria. 
and Feedy's the same, you know, to be fair to Feedy, Feedy's trying to move in that area as well, so that we don't have in the, what I call the established industry, really people whose balance sheets don't reflect the success that the business ought to be having. Our guys are so skilled out there to pack those trucks. They are. They're just, they're, they're amazing. They are absolutely amazing. They, they deserve to be paid a lot more than what they currently are. Yeah. And let's and, hope, let's hope moving forward, we can, we can get them more money. And they are told, you know, to come in at whatever hour we need them in the morning <laughs> to get to the job. And we tell them they can come back when they're finished. And we all know that the reason they don't finish sometimes is completely out of their control and our control, you know. so we- Absolutely. It's not a nine to five thirty no, no, job, no, is it? No, no, no. So, oh, and by the way, this job comes with a night out. Go and sleep with that bloke. You know, you may not like him, but go and sleep in the pot with him. <laughs> You know, it's <laughs> oh, and by the way, the job work runs into Saturday. Sorry, yeah. So we, you know, we want great flexibility from the staff, but I mean, maybe this is the modern world. I mean, you look at some of these other industries, you know, who seem to pay fairly cheap people and want them to work seven days a week when it suits them. I don't know, maybe it's, but it doesn't fit right with me. I can tell you. No, 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 not at all. No. So, what advice would you give? To a young Robert just starting out in the industry. I would tell him or her, it could be a Roberta, (laughs) I would tell him or her to find themselves a mentor or series of mentors. And there have been people in this industry who have been mentors to me, either knowingly or unknowingly. So find yourself people who you can look up to who's in your business, in the wider industry, whose knowledge and experience you can tap into, whose wisdom you can tap into, and never be afraid to ask questions. If you don't understand, don't be afraid to ask, because if you don't ask, you'll never know. So that would be my advice to any young person. Michael Gerson said to me once upon a time, you know what your problem is, don't you? And I said, no. He said, you ask too many questions. <laughs> and I think, you know, I asked questions because I wanted to know. So that would be my advice. Nobody will take it, but that's what I would tell them to do. No, I think people will take that because it was interesting recording an episode with the Young Movers group and young Alexandra Lane said exactly that. Right. She has now learned to ask questions, get yeah. past the, the fear factor, ask yeah. questions, because she wants to know everything. She knows she's not going to be able to learn everything overnight. No. But the more questions you ask, the more you will get to know. Yep. Yep. True. Where do you see yourself and the industry hmm. in the next five years? Is there anyone ready to step into your business shoes and take over the reins at GB Liners? That's a leading question, isn't it? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I am immortal. Uh, <laughs> I've been told that. <laughs> I, that's, I don't suppose they said that. Um, <laughs> moral, they said. Um, well, I don't think in five years' time I shall want to be doing what I'm doing now. That's, that's, that's a fairly simple and straightforward answer. I work. I really do enjoy what I do. It's I've been very lucky in that the job's been my my job and my hobby. So it's always kept my interest. 
And I don't suppose that'll change particularly. I shall always probably want to be involved at some stage. Whether I want to be involved in all the nitty-gritty day-to-day stuff that comes along, I probably don't. I think there probably maybe I will want to nudge other people in the right direction and say, well, have you thought of doing this or have you thought about doing that? But I don't think I'll want a full-time executive role in, in five years' time. In fact, I'm pretty sure I won't want, want that. Um, is there anybody ready to step into the shoes? Well, of course, I am. Uh, Jeff Jeff Watson said it to me in a slightly different context. He said, you know, a lot of what we do is not to do with running the moving business these days. And a lot of what I do is, you know, not to do you know, the day-to-day operation of the business. So are there people who could look after the day-to-day operation of the business? Yes, there are quite a number of men in the business who could. Who could do that? Are there people who can do things like dealing with a bank and dealing with solicitors and dealing with property issues? Probably a bit more complicated uh, to find those, I suspect. And that probably the challenge for the next five years, or maybe less than five years, to find people to take over those sort of roles um, more than the operational type of issues, really. Where do you see the industry in five years? Do you see any changes to the industry at all? I think the process of consolidation will go on. You know, you are seeing multi-site businesses for various reasons. I'm sure that'll continue. I think you'll probably continue to see specialisation in the way that we have. I think you'll probably continue to see our customers being stolen and sold back to us by the uh, lead generator type people. <laughs> I'm sure you'll, con- you know, so trying to find a way to make your own brand stand out, a bit like the challenge that the insurance companies have had, you know, with Go Compare or whatever they're called, you know, try and sell everybody's, and it's all driven down on price. I'm sure that'll be a challenge. We need to we need to think about how we're going to deal with it. Um you know, somebody said in the self-storage business, nothing much changes very quickly in the self-storage business in terms of customers moving in and out was what they meant. You know, well, I think we've seen this in the in the recession or the downturn for um, COVID. Removal income dropped to zero. Storage income didn't change. And I think that's clearly an advantage that uh, that storage side of the business has. It doesn't change overnight like the moving uh, side income stream changes. but you know, the pace of changes is exponential, isn't it? Just watching Arcadia today sort of die, you know, its customer base has gone online and just they want it now and they want it different and they want it cheap. And I suspect we won't be immune from that type of process, I'm afraid. And I'm conscious that I might be an analogue man in a digital age. So maybe I need to move off the stage pretty fast and leave it for some other people to make a mess of it. (laughs) What do you do outside of the industry to switch off then, Robert? I don't. I don't. I was going to say, I can't see you ever switching off. I do enjoy my my Hereford Football Club when I can get to uh, watch them, like a season ticket there. Hopefully a week on Saturday, I'll be able to go to a home game because I have a season ticket. I'll be one of the favoured 1,400 that will be allowed into the, the Edgar Street Mega Stadium. <laughs> I take it you sponsor down there. 
uh, we got a board. We got a board. Yeah, so wouldn't it? <laughs> doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, we lo- we sponsor the local cricket league as well because that's another interest of quite a lot of the staff. A lot of the staff are quite interested in cricket. And these days, I do like my holidays too, which are very much holidays being spells between periods of work. So when I go on holiday. That means no email from my point of view. I sort of despair of those people who go on holiday and spend all their time on their email. So I go on holiday and I've been lucky enough in the last few years to go some really interesting places. So we went to Cuba, we went to Jordan, we went back to South Africa. It's our third trip to South Africa, the early part of this year before COVID. And going to those sort of more interesting places in the world is uh, what I want to do a bit more of. But I also like the south of France and I want to spend a bit more time there as well. All I need to do that is to have some money. I'm waiting for the cartel money from the from DAF and MAN to drop into my lap, and then I can afford a second home abroad. That's what I need. Is that going to happen? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine, isn't it? You know, <laughs> I've signed the forms and I've joined up on the basis of you know nothing ventured, nothing gained. So exactly, what do you have to lose? Well, I mean. If the foot figures are to be believed, we think we're in for three quarters of a million. So that'll be worth having. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's a bit of a rainbow that we're chasing. So we'll see. Well, fingers crossed that comes off. Yeah. And finally, I like to end my podcast with a funny moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? I don't know if it's funny, but I think it's... I. I'm a very fair-minded and uh, generous sort of guy, as everybody knows. <laughs> never opinionated, never, um, you know, just... Hardly, hardly ever. But occasionally we fall out with a customer who we think is trying to take advantage of us. Over my years in this industry, I have made a few visits to court as a result of disputes with customers. And this is probably 20 years ago now. We moved a chap to by Loch Ness. It came into store for 10 days, went out of store to Loch Ness. And in fairness, it wasn't the best job we'd ever done. And there was some damage and not, you know, no, no dispute about that. And we put young Stuart Ash on a plane to Glasgow. This was just after the Wright brothers invented flying. And the... <laughs> He drove in a rental car up to Loch Ness uh, by appointment to see the damage and to suggest how we might deal with it. And the customer refused to let him in the door and turned him around and sent him away. And then proceeded to claim off us. And we said, sorry, mate, not until we've sort of seen it. And no, no, our obligations to repair, all the sort of things that normally we say to customers. And uh, he, in the end, went off and claimed off his household insurance, which, of course, was new for old. They didn't ask too many questions. and They paid him about £19,000 for Whoa. Uh, his claim. And then, they, of course, they subrogated against us. And uh, we told them to go forth and multiply, as you do, to subrogation claims. And I think we settled it for like a 1000 quid in the end, and off they went. And we then got a claim in the county court from him for a legal principle which I hadn't come across before, but I've come across since, called total failure of consideration. And the allegation was that the £5,000 that he'd paid us for the move, uh, he'd got no consideration for it, he got no value from it. It was so bad that he was entitled to all his money back. 
And so I said, well, sorry, mate, you know, don't, this is on. So we all pitched up at um, Hereford County Court one Thursday or Friday afternoon. On his side was a barrister. There was the solicitor, the solicitor's clerk, him and his wife, who'd driven down from Scotland, a night in each direction, night in a hotel in Hereford, and then day a day and a bit back to up there as well. And on my side, there's me <laughs> and three removal men, right, who delivered the stuff up in Scotland and the estimator in Cheltenham who'd seen it, seen the job originally and was able to give witnesses to what the uh, customer and he had agreed. So to cut a very long story short, the judge listened to it all and said, yes, OK, you didn't get you know, the world's greatest job. I award you £500. Thank you very much for coming, all of you. And I said, thank you much, sir. That's fine. Because, uh, of course, he wanted 5000 And as we passed the room where the uh, other party was, we heard raised voices, the barrister being abused by the client, the solicitor being abused by the client, the solicitor clerk being abused by the client, because <laughs> £500 didn't really pay his expenses and certainly didn't go any you know, from coming down from Scotland and certainly didn't go anywhere towards his legal costs whatsoever. I said, thank you very much, uh, cheerio. <laughs> Because when the claim had come in, I'd gone to our insurers and they'd said, give him the 5,000 quid. And I said, not on your life. And they said, well, there's the 5,000 quid. You're on your own. And so I was now four and a half thousand pounds up. <laughs> oh, nice one. <laughs> a happy ending. <laughs> I, I do have another one for you, Colin, if you want. Yes. These court appearances have been... <laughs> They've been memorable and uh, never really lost in court. So we moved a chap and he was he worked for BP and our custom effectively was BP. And we dropped his refectory dining table, 12 foot long, great big solid piece of oak. And we took a great well, no, a chunk. We took a chunk out of the side of it and we had it repaired and took it back to him and he refused it. Meanwhile, BP hadn't paid my bill for 3000 quid. And when I approached them about it, they said, we've given him the £3,000. If you want the money, you'd go and get it off him. So I said, I want £3,000. And he said, go away. I want a new dining table. And I said, sorry, so it doesn't work like that. I've repaired it. That's it. And he said, well, see you in court then. <laughs> so we did. So we trailed to Brentford County Court one day, me and my polisher, me suing for £3,000, a counterclaim from the customer for a new dining table for £3,600. And I said to the judge, I'm ever so sorry, sir, we were, we're here this morning. I said, I did offer the customer binding arbitration, but he turned it down. Oh, did you, he said. And I thought, oh, that's one, one for me. <laughs> and uh, so I said, uh, we've got here some quotes for putting the dining table right. And the judge said, oh, yes, OK, can I see those? And these have been obtained by the customer. The one said to repair dining table 150 quid, and the other one said to repair dining table 600 quid. And the judge said to the customer, well, what's the difference between these two quotes? And the customer said, well, one's for a good job and one's for a bad job. And the judge said, yeah, but they don't say that. They say to repair dining table. And so he said, it's for 150 quid. I award you 150 quid and I award Mr. Bartup 3,000 pound. And I said, thank you very much, sir. <laughs> and I said, of course, I did claim interest on the summons as well at the 8% statutory rate. And I said, it's been 18 months now. So I said, uh, 
could I have 12% on it? And he said, yes, yes, that's fine. So that's another £600 for you, Mr. Bardo. No, 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 360 quid, 12% of £3,000. And I said, well, of course, I've had to come from Hereford today to this court hearing here. And uh, I said, could I have my travelling expenses, sir, please? And he said, uh, yeah, well, he said, couldn't you get a local manager to represent you? And I said, well, I think when we're in court, I said, I think it's only right that the director represents the company. And he said, yes, yes, of course. Yes, that's fine. So he gave me my travel expenses. And I said, of course, I've got my polisher here as well, who's given up a day's work. <laughs> I wonder if he could be compensated for that as well. And I came out with 3,600 quid from the court, which was another <laughs> another good day out, I thought. so. Absolutely so, uh, brilliant. Yeah. If anybody needs to go to court... Give Robert Bartoff a ring. He'll represent you. Uh, I'm sure I'll come unstuck one day, but so far, so good. Anyway, so there we are. <laughs> and, uh, Robert, many, many thanks for giving up your time this afternoon to record Moving Matters with me. I truly appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you, Colin. Good luck. Thank you, Robert. Bye-bye now. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 14 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice. And please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to Robert Barter of GB Liners for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Robert. If you would like to know more about GB Liners and the services they offer, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that could be relayed to our listeners or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by completing the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Well, that is all from me. So until next time, keep moving. <laughs>